The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Friday, June 15th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president on the lawn of the White House had an interview with Fox and Friends, or really just the main friend, Steve Ducey. And then the president answered questions in a press gaggle. PolitiFact reported out nine of his uh, statements, his questionable statements. I counted a, a whole bunch they let pass without comment. For instance, Trump said that people came up to him on the campaign trail saying their son's remains were in Korea. Those must have been some old people, some MAGA hat wearing centarians. If you were 20 years old in 1953 when the war ended with a mom or dad who was 20 when they had you, the uh, person coming up to Trump would have been 103 today. Could have happened. Kind of guess that it didn't. He also said this to Steve Ducey. You know, they were all saying, oh, it has nothing to do with the flag. It's the way we've been treated. In the meantime, they're making $15 million a year. Now, of the 1,800 players or so in the NFL, there are exactly 37 who make $15 million a year or more. And of those, four actually took a knee. Calais Campbell, Marcel Darius, Melvin Ingram, Justin Houston. This is through my counting. It's harder to do the actual counting, the actual work, the actual scholarship on this issue than just to pop off that all these guys are making $15 million a year. So it's not really an incorrect statement. There were a couple guys making $15 million a year. It just, you know, not very factual. Similarly, he called the separation of children from their parents at the border a consequence of a Democratic bill. Actually, not similarly. That's just false. It was hard to pin him down on which bill he meant. I'm going to say he didn't really mean any bill. He just meant a sentence. And once he got that sentence out, he was pretty happy. In another area that's not a lie, but, you know, would be nice to flesh out the claim was when he talked about the war games off the coast of the Korean Peninsula. War games, by the way, is his word. It was pointed out that's what the North Koreans call them. No, but it's also what I call them. Very important. And he wanted us to know that it would cost a lot of money in bomber fuel. I looked it up. A B-2 bomber does indeed burn $130,000 an hour worth of fuel. But guess what? If you're not flying in a war game, those bombers do fly anyway. They do drill. Maybe they wouldn't fly four hours from Guam, but they'd be doing some flying. And anyway, $130,000, just a drop in the bucket. But why? Why, you ask? Why does he lie? Is it because... When he lies, it doesn't really pay a price. I'm, I'm sure it's that. Is it because lies are both easier than uncomfortable facts? Absolutely. But also because lies are easier than unknown facts. Now, I didn't say unknowable. He just doesn't know a lot of facts. He's both inhospitable to the truth and indifferent to it. But I have this new theory, and this is what I want to try it on you. My theory is almost certainly an example of overthinking it, which is not a Trump vice, but hear me out on this. Trump says, I'm theorizing, he says so much nonsense in order to provide a clear pattern which will clear him in the Comey case. Here's how it works. The Inspector General report came out, and it really did say that Comey really did screw up the Hillary email investigation. And remember, Trump's stated reason for firing Comey was that Comey really did screw up the Hillary Clinton email investigation. So it should be a good defense. Aha. 
But then he goes and tells Lester Holt, yeah, I fired him because of Russia. So as soon as he said that, I'm sure all the keen legal minds in the Trump orbit came up to him and said, Mr. President, we need to do something here. We need to lay down a foundation. What we need to do is over the next, I don't know, two years of the presidency, we need to establish that you just talk shit morning, noon, and night. That you say all sorts of things that you don't mean. Stuff that's pulled directly out of that keister of yours. That you contradict yourself often. They have to go back. We have to show some compassion. Right, we just can't throw everybody out. They have so to you're going to split up families. Chuck. You're going to deport children. Chuck, no, no. We're going to keep the families together. We have to keep the families together. But you're going to keep but them together. Have to so why don't you, Mr. President, on occasion, many occasions, why don't you say a thing and then say it's opposite? I don't know. Are, are you comfortable with that? It's quite a level of dishonesty. We've done the math. Nah, it's more than that. It's more than four lies a day. You're going to have to get up to 6.5 lies a day. That's what you'll have to do for our legal strategy. And the key is, once you hit about, I don't know, 3,000 lies, which our projections say will be around the summer of 2018, then you'll be able to make your defense. We know we say it's possible, Mr. President. Not only is it possible, it's the only way. Once you get to 3,000 examples of bullshit, bullshit from little turdlets to whoppers, only then will you be able to plausibly convince a prosecutor that you shouldn't be believed no matter what you say. When you admit to obstructing evidence, it's just another example of nonsense coming out of your mouth. Yeah, we are pioneering a new defense, which has never been tried. We have a word for it. Are you ready? It's the not guilty by reason of mendacity defense. What Dan White was to the Twinkie defense, what OJ was to jury nullification. Yes, yes, sir. OJ was on a lot of magazine covers. That is true. You can do it, Mr. President. You have to start now. We need you to get out there and say something just absolutely bonkers. Uh, try one out on me. They just said we should not go into Iraq. Perfect. This is going to work. On the show today, I spiel about the Heisenberg presidency. But first, the man who has perhaps wielded the most influential hand in the longest-running sitcom of all time. Now, his hand is five-fingered and non-yellow, unlike the characters on his show. I'm speaking of The Simpsons and the writer, Mike Reese. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1990, in the dorm that I lived in, the RAs, you know those, the we called them the, the RAs, they had a sign on their door that said, Bill versus Bart, who will win? Because one of the RAs was named Bill and his roommate was named Bart. Credit, no, in case you're very young, in 1990, Bart was not a popular name. But no one needed to be explained. No one needed to wonder, wow, what's that a reference to? Even though Bill and Bart were RAs living in there, everyone knew what the headline referred to because in 1990, Bart was moving to Thursdays, Bart Simpson to go up against Bill Cosby. And the thing that I remember about the time is that Bart Simpson was seen as the rebel, was seen as chaos, was seen as, you know, the force for a sort of benign evil against all the goodness and purity that was Bill Cosby. Well, it turns out <laughs> that if you're writing for cartoon characters, they're, they're a little less fallible than the real heroes with feats of clay. And writing about cartoon characters is what goes on in Mike Reese's new memoir written with Matthew Clickstein, Springfield Confidential, Jokes, Secrets, and Outright Lies from a Lifetime writing for The Simpsons. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Mike. Hi. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. So, Mike... When you were first brought on to The Simpsons, when they transitioned from, and by the way, I support their transition, <laughs> when they transitioned from characters on The Tracy Ullman Show to we're going to do the first cartoon in primetime since The Flintstones, were you excited by the creative possibilities or just, oh, this is a paycheck? <laughs> uh, I would have to go with the latter. Uh-huh. It was- <laughs> I was on a summer break from the lowest rated show on TV. I was working for It's Gary Shandling Show. And I got the call from Sam Simon saying, would you like to work on this? We're turning The Simpsons into a half-hour show. And I didn't know Sam. And I go, why are you calling me? And he said, because everyone else has turned this down. <laughs> and so I took the job thinking, I've hit rock bottom. I'm writing for a cartoon. You know, in 1988, was just cartoons meant crappy Saturday morning cartoons. But- and it was on the Fox Network, which was a brand-new entity that had... A very sleazy reputation, unlike today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, different kind of sleazy. Yeah. More specifically sleazy. So you write about in the book that the order of the episodes, you wanted to put your best episode first. Uh, Which episode was that? Did you know it was the best episode? We, I think we actually sort of aired in order, except that we were supposed to debut in September. Mm -hmm. The show was supposed to come on in September, and it was an episode where Marge and Homer go on a date and the babysitter bandit comes over and ties up the kids. That was our first episode. And so it was the first episode we got to see, fully animated. We had had 13 of them in the works. This first one came back and it was a catastrophe. It It was a disaster. There was a room full of people watching. Nobody laughed. 
And so The Simpsons literally almost got canceled before it ever came on the air. And luckily, the second episode came in, and that was great. That's one called Bart the Genius. David Silverman directed it, and John Vitti wrote it. Uh, But by then, it was too late. And by then, we also were going, what are the next 11 going to be like? Are they good? Are they bad? So we didn't come on in September. Our ninth episode was a Christmas show. And we said, all right, let's start with the ninth episode. We'll start at Christmas, and that'll give us three or four months to fix the other ones. Like everything else at The Simpsons, it looked like we planned it that way. It looked like we had a grand order to things when, in fact, we were just kind of improvising as we went along. In the beginning, it did seem to me that what you were going for, and there was no template for this, so you were trying your uh, things out, was everyone in the family was horrible. And there was, uh, let's just take this family to the extreme. And there was less specificity to the characters. And as you write in the book, even in the beginning, Lisa's first line or one of her first ideas was, let's throw rocks at swans. And so Lisa, uh, so Bart kind of stayed that horrible brat, but everyone else got more specific and maybe nicer and more relatable and Homer went from just being kind of an angry abuser to well that but some other things too. You know it came from everyone because everybody the three creators of the show Sam Simon Matt Groening James L. Brooks you know all have good hearts and know you can't get by on snark alone but Jim Brooks especially he, the man is just like one giant human beating heart. Yeah. He's just so full of warmth and emotion and Wow, he knows the heart. The biggest trick to The Simpsons in those early days was knowing 30 seconds of heart at the end of an episode will really shock and move people, but two minutes of heart is way too much. Then you're suddenly you're a TGIF show. Yeah. So which is the episode that you rank as the best ever? There's one uh, where Lisa finds the bones of an angel. And I have to explain... I've worked on all but two seasons of the show. So out of 650 episodes, uh, there's only 50 I had nothing to do with. And there's only 50, only 50, you yeah. know. <laughs> so, but there's only 50 I can go home and watch The Simpsons like everybody else. And get else. surprised and not and, see the punchline coming. Yes, yeah. and I mean, and I go, wow, the show seems to be much better without me. But I don't, I don't tell people that. But this one with Lisa finds the bones of an angel was everything I love in The Simpsons. It was a mystery. It was about an issue you'd never see discussed on TV, where about faith versus science. Is Stephen you know, Jay Gould in that one? Yeah. Stephen Jay yeah. Gould the is in the fact that that's show. a guest star says enough right there. <laughs> it's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> so that's it. It's everything I love about a show, and I have to say I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. I think my favorite episode was one that you criticized, but I don't want to get it wrong. So you uh, regretted or somewhat apologized for insulting the city of New Orleans so much oh. with with the streetcar episode. But I think the streetcar episode is my favorite episode because just the streetcar part, the songs are fantastic. The interactions around the songs are fantastic. But mostly because that would it be a B-plot with Maggie in the nursery, the Iron Rand nursery for tots, which is a total it's really a totally different kind of comedy. There's no there's no dialogue to that and it's freaking brilliant. I think that is the put that in the Museum of Television Radio. I, I agree. It's a it's a spectacular episode. It's and there's two guys to credit. None again, none of them me. I'm the guy crapping up the show. Because it was <laughs> Sam Simon, I think, had the basic notion, put Marge in streetcar and 
let's make it sort of an allegory for their marriage. And yeah. that Homer is Stanley Kowalski. Great insight. And again, you didn't see that on a lot of Saturday morning cartoons, Tennessee no. Williams. And then Jeff Martin wrote the script. He wrote those songs. He wrote the music, the lyrics. And he wrote that whole Maggie subplot on his own because that's the kind of work nobody wants to do. It's just 10 pages of of stage directions. Nobody even wants to read it, much less so write you, it. So you point out that animated comedies have this fallback that don't usually work, which is we'll save it in animation, which is the joke is lame and they figure they could cut to the animated version of a reaction shot or the fish makes a bubble and then it'll be funny. And on The Simpsons, it's like, no, if the joke doesn't work, nothing will save it. But then how does 10 minutes of no dialogue action sequences, how does the room know that that works as a joke? If you can believe this, and we do this in every episode, um, um, we have a table reading. We listen to the table reading. You know, the cast is there and about 30 or 40 spectators are in the room. And we listen to what gets a laugh. And certainly you can judge a dialogue joke by that. But you can judge a visual joke that way, too. We just somebody, you know, will read a paragraph of stage directions. And if it gets a laugh, it'll yeah. work in animation. And we're that rigorous about that. It's not a perfect system, and very often it drives me crazy that everything's always got to get a laugh on The Simpsons. And it's not only got to get a laugh when we do a table reading, but then two months later we see it in rough animation with another audience. It's got to get a laugh then, and then two months later we see it in full-color animation. It's got to get a laugh then. So woe to you if you wrote a great joke in the first draft because— the same audience has to see it three times and laugh every time for it to finally make it to the air. So you talk about in the book how at one point your partner, Al Jean, there was a joke and he said, no, wait a minute, season seven, episode 17, and he knew that it had been done before. Correct. But is there any more formalized keeper of the Bible or someone who could tell you uh, when the continuity is right or wrong or when the history of someone or which one's Rod and which one's Todd? The answer is no. We yeah. we don't care. We just don't care. And famously, in one episode, we said groundskeeper Willie's from Glasgow. In another episode, we said he's from Aberdeen. We don't care. But the, the, the people in Glasgow and Aberdeen care deeply about this. That's all they have, Mike. It's, <laughs> and they it's a rivalry. When they play each other in soccer, a fight breaks out over where this drunken janitor is from. But luckily, there's the fans and the Simpsons wiki, and we use these resources. Did you care, Matthew? Were you one of these people who cared? You wanted some answers? You know, I think that, as Mike said, there are people who care about these things because they identify with the characters. And, you know, you will always say, especially even sometimes in a movie, so-and-so would not say that, so-and-so would not do that. But one of the reasons that The Simpsons has endured so much over the years and why I will continue to endure is because of the, the turnover in staff. There have obviously been a lot of people like Mike and others who have been there for a very long time, but in bringing in these different people from different places, and some of them have PhDs in science, and some of them have, you know, were lawyers and whatever else it might be, they're able to really aggregate so much different information, sensibilities, styles. There were times where a lot of the writers were stand-up comics, and you can kind of tell the difference with those episodes. There were times where a lot of the stand-ups were people, you know, just directly from the Harvard Lampoon, and that was a little bit different. The original episodes had their own style to them. 
Someone even asked me the other day, you know, why is it that The Simpsons continue to endure? And I said, because we want to see what is The Simpsons going to do with this movie? What is The Simpsons going to do with this political event? And Mad Magazine was just like that. Exactly. SNL. Certainly today we have people, boy, wouldn't it have been interesting to see what Hunter S. Thompson would have said about Donald Trump? Wouldn't it have been really interesting to see what David Foster Wallace would have said about what's going on with the internet right now? So if if it happens to not be that consistent to something that happened 23 years ago, I think I can live with that, especially now that I'm married and have actual adult problems. <laughs> Mike, when you write for a character, are there any... I've sometimes talked to creators who say, okay, the way to understand Jimmy is he always wants to be loved but never says the right... Or just these kind of general rules that really crack a character. And maybe the the viewer won't ever hear articulated, but it will inform the character. Does Homer have any of those rules? Not really. I mean, Homer, I love because he's a comedy writer's dream. He has every single thing funny wrong with him. <laughs> he's fat and bald and stupid and alcoholic and lazy. And then in season four, he walked into the pet store and the owner said, what is that horrible smell? And we and George Meyer, one of our writers, goes, oh, I guess Homer smells now too. <laughs> but John Swartzwelder, who famously wrote 60 episodes of The Simpsons, three solid seasons on his own. He said he writes Homer as a dog. Yeah. He just writes Homer as a dog, no memory, always kind of happy and excited about the next treat. So that's that's the only rule of thumb I've ever heard. And I and I also wanted to ask you, do you think that if you chronicled The Simpsons over time and it hits its stride fairly early and, you know, you could argue the season three or four is like the greatest uh, episode in sitcom history, if you look at it over time, do you get a sense of how American humor or humor on television has changed? Yes, this is the one thing. I don't give The Simpsons a lot of credit for anything. I don't think it's changed the way people think. I don't think it's changed politics, you know. Uh, The one thing it's changed is I think it taught TV and maybe movies to work harder. Yeah. That was – it was the only marching orders we had the first season making the show. Especially, I think, because nobody thought it would last. We said, let's see how much we can pack into an episode. And – we made it really dense, and then I started looking around. Oh, other shows are trying to dense. You know, every every scene, every opportunity to have a joke in the background has a joke in the background. Every book off a shelf is a joke. Don't write any any time there are three lines, which are two lines of non joke and one line of joke. Why don't you make them two lines of jokes and one line of non joke? Yeah, right. And that was you know TV at that point. This is nineteen eighty nine. Mm-hmm. The biggest hit on TV was Cosby, and you know. That was a slow show. I thought it was a good show, but nothing ever happened on Cosby. And it is no joke to say the fastest-paced, most irreverent show on TV at that point was The Golden Girls. Just these four old corpses shuffling around (laughs) an apartment was as dynamic as TV got. So we picked up the pace, and now I've got—I can even say— I can't keep up with TV anymore. I, I watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine or, yeah, uh, or Kimmy, Kimmy Schmidt. Schmidt. Kimmy Schmidt, so many jokes. Very go, dense. Slow yeah. down, yeah. slow down. And I know this is what we wrought. Maybe it was that the audience was 
there the whole time and TV didn't respect it enough. Maybe you maybe you brought the audience further along and you dared the audience to come with you, avant-garde style. But I think we just generally thought the audience as more idiotic than they were. I think so. I, I you know, having, I worked for a decade in that kind of TV before Simpsons came along. Yeah, you could coast by with a lot, lot less. Springfield Confidential is the book, Jokes, Secrets, and Outright Lies from a Lifetime Writing for The Simpsons. Mike Reese with Matthew Clickstein. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Pleasure. Thank you. And if you're in Brooklyn, oh, wait, I am. They're doing a live thing at the Alamo Draft House on Monday. Reese will be signing his memoir, and they will be, uh, what, are they screening episodes of The Simpsons here? It is, it is a patented presentation I've done 400 times right. in 21 countries. The if Qataris you, love it. They, yeah. they loved it in Qatar. They loved it in India. They hated it in South Carolina. <laughs> but mostly the world likes it, and I know they're going to love it in Brooklyn. So if you think you're more like the Qataris than the South <laughs> Carolinians, come to the Alamo Draft House, 7 p.m. Thank you, guys. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. And now the spiel. We're witnessing the Heisenberg presidency. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle, as it is popularly understood, tells us that the observer affects the experiment. Now, some physics enthusiasts in the listening audience might object to this definition as inexact, but the real definition is closer to um, something about the extent to which complementary variables of a particle like position X and momentum P can be known. So please allow me to just use Heisenberg uncertainty principle as it's usually used by non-physics enthusiasts. Thank you. The way Walter White used it in Breaking Bad. Good. We're on the same page. Okay. Here's why we're living in the Heisenberg uncertainty presidency. Because so much that Donald Trump does is affected by the fact that it's Donald Trump doing it. For instance, the thinking before the president of the United States met with backwards dictator Kim Jong-un was that the U.S. would confer upon Kim a higher status in the world's eye by dint of his meeting with the president. Aha, but the joke's on Kim. Because when President Trump decided to meet with Kim, it wasn't just the president deciding to meet with him, it was President Trump. Ah, look who's shaking hands in front of that display of North Korean and US flags. It's a weird portly guy with autocratic tendencies. And Kim Jong-un. I might not adhere to physics, but I am a strict student of comedic formulas. The Heisenberg presidency showed its head today as well when Donald Trump was entertaining a question about his administration's lie that he didn't compose a statement lying about his son's meeting with the Russians. 
Did you dictate the statement about Donald Trump? I, you, let's not talk about Mr. it. You know what that is? But can it's you irrelevant. Us? It's a statement to the New York Times, the phony, failing New York Times. Well, just just, just wait a minute, wait a minute. To clear That's up. not a statement to a high tribunal of judges. Understood. That's a statement to the phony New York Times. So in fact, in fact frankly, he shouldn't even speak to the New York Times because they only write phony stories but anyway. In fact, the president can prove the New York Times is failing and lying because they reported his denials that he dictated the letter. Wrong. Lying. Losers. Can't believe him. He Heisenberged again on his accomplishment in averting war with the North Koreans. But to be fair, when I came in, people thought we were probably going to war with North Korea. Yeah, I remember this. I was worried about a war with North Korea. And here on the Lawfare podcast, Yale professor and North Korea expert Mira Rapp Hopper tells me why. It's worth noting that the reason we were terrified of a war on the Korean Peninsula just a few months ago is because the president of the United States was largely making those threats. Um, So I think as analysts, we have to be careful not to award too many points for slightly mitigated lunacy. What? That would deny his administration all the points. Donald Trump creates a problem, sometimes makes the problem a little less bad than if he had never created it in the first place, and then he takes a load of credit. Or he escapes complete blame for debasing the presidency because he's the president. It's the presidency of Donald J. Trump that he's debasing. One last example of the Heisenberg presidency. He decries shithole countries, and in doing so, pushes his own country a little bit down that road. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname, just producer, is heading the greatest legal case he's brought since his class action against the never-ending story. As Mary Wilson, just senior producer, said to Dolores Montenegro in Calling All Quakers, have it your way, baby. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast's Cat's Breath, smells like cat food. The gist, we can't even say the word titmouse without giggling like a schoolgirl. Oom-peru-de-peru-du-peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>